my name is Victor Marks, and I do not belong on this podcast. You've invited me on, and I'm glad to hear be here, but I, I don't belong. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. So I'm not a developer. I don't, I don't have an app to promote. At which point your listeners are saying, well, you're right, he doesn't belong here. But don't stop yet. <laughs> don't, don't turn it off just yet. Hear me out for one moment. I have done a bunch of different things in the past that may be useful to you. I, a long, long time ago, worked for a UK company called Melia that made TV tuners for Mac. Back when the change was happening between analog television and digital television, we made some of the first digital television tuners for Mac. And we sold those into Apple stores worldwide. And we just demonstrated at Macworld, back when Macworld was a thing. And that was how I got to be at the Macworld where they debuted the iPhone and the first Apple TV. Everyone talks about the iPhone. No one really remembers the Apple TV debut because the Apple TV was a hobby. And it's turned into this big thing, especially in the States. After that, I worked for a company called Griffin Technology maker of fine iPod and iPhone cases, and also at the time, Bluetooth speakers. And then I worked for a company in the UK called Gear 4, who you may know now as maker of iPhone and iPod cases. <laughs> but uh, at the time, we were also very be deep into, into Bluetooth speakers and eventually putting Doppler radar in speakers, which is really interesting, and I'll tell you about in a moment. Um, awesome. Yeah. And then I, then I did a startup. And my startup was not related to iPod and iPhone accessories. My startup was uh, a buddy of mine from high school. Uh, during Hurricane Katrina, years before that, he, he had put together an ad hoc cell phone network in, uh, in, in Mississippi so that emergency workers could have communications when there were, in fact, no communications to be had at all. And he did it on a shoestring budget just using donated equipment from corporations and, and put it together and actually had it working. And he waited around a few years and said, you know what, this was a really useful thing. Someone ought to do this. And we, we waited around, and no one was doing it. No one was making the equipment to be able to throw together a live working cell phone network in an emergency. And Hurricane Sandy wow. hit. And with Hurricane Sandy, we, you know, we got a call from FEMA saying, can you make these things? And, and the answer was, well, not on this short notice because we hadn't been quite prepared. And, and so we, we went through a lot of figuring out what's product market fit, which is, is something that people in lean startup world talk about a lot. And I'm sure your listeners are familiar with that, that whole sort of ethos and theory about how you find how to make something. Um, but, but the idea is, is that you need to have a, a fit for your product in order for your product to actually be useful. And the first thing that I said to him was, you know, waiting around for natural disasters to happen is, is no way to have any kind of sustainable business or income or product. No. Because no. They're, they're unpredictable. <laughs> and so then we thought about trying to, to make something for members of the press in, um, let us say, less friendly countries, less friendly regimes, like regimes that don't want to be reported on. Because, obviously, if you can make an independent communications network, then you could make an independent communications network for that kind of application as well. Um, yeah. But it turns out that, that, you know, one of the first things you need to do is talk to people, right? Talk to people in the, uh, in the field, in, in the world. 
and see if that's something they actually need, because the answer is no, they don't. And so we thought about what about the extractives market, right? People trying to to dig things out of the um, out of the ground, right? Mining and or, or pulling oil out of the ground, things like that. And it took me about two weeks to find someone in that field and talk to them. And I got them on the phone. We were talking about it, and it turns out that that you know if you're in the oil industry, you don't really need. First of all, they roll their own. They make their own every time. And secondly, they don't really need something timely. It doesn't have to happen right away. You know, they, they can collect the data and, and bring it back slow as opposed to having it relayed back immediately. And yep. so that wasn't a good application. Talked to someone who was actually doing mining, and their answer was radio waves are not great around dynamite because that's how we trigger dynamite. <laughs> and I I am many things, but I am not going to be responsible for someone dying because we blew them up with radio waves and dynamite. No. No. So what we ended up doing was we ended up finding a place where this application was important, where, where this kind of being able to build a data network was useful. And what happened is in Tanzania, they have a lake, Lake Tanganyika. It's 500 kilometers long. And... It's it's fairly mountainous. If you wanted to get from from um, you know somewhere on on the lake back to Dar es Salaam, the the capital, you would um, have to take a motorcycle. You'd have to take a four by four. You might have to take a seaplane. It's it's pretty rugged. There's no telephone networks. There's barely power. It's it's not reliable infrastructure. Let's say, and so. There are health clinics there, and the health clinic can every, be everything from a full-blown hospital to, to a mud hut, to a cinder block kind of shack. And the people that, that work these, the healthcare providers, are not necessarily doctors. They can be people from the village that have a knack for it. And so what we did was we created a network up and down the lake that relayed data back from one end to the other, and... We also created an EMR, an electronic medical record system. We talked about trying to adapt a, a U.S. electronic medical record system, and we didn't do it because, you know, the, the people, first of all, who don't have a lot of experience with what a computer is, and then asking them to fill out an epic medical record system that's all about uh, metrics for administration as opposed to metrics for diagnosis is is not yeah, helpful. It's not tuned not tuned to the right sort of use case and, at that point. And if you ask doctors in the United States is the electronic medical record system tuned for the standard care for for your needs? The answer is no. I didn't go to medical school to become a note taker, but that's what it is. And so, yeah. We we wrote our own. And we used high frequency low data rate radio to relay data between these things and have it synchronized at the hospital. And the benefit of that, the point of all this, was that we did two things. One, one of us is that the standard of care and, and the way that things were documented was all around how many vaccines did you deliver, how many doses did you deliver, how many needles did you use, and just inventory accounting, right? And the thing that we added by doing this was the keeping a record of the patient so that each time you encountered a patient, it was not the first time something that was totally new to them. Before that, it was, you know, I've been here before. Oh, yeah, I kind of remember you, but no records. Well, now there are records. Right. 
And so you lose all of that information each time. You lost all of that information each time. One of the things that we found was that, um, you know, we were going to create a patient di- record and create an ID number for that record. And I said, well, what if we just use, you know, their, their government ID? Turns out people don't necessarily have those because people on this lake, this lake borders with the uh, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. And the government doesn't exactly trust that, that people there are Tanzanian versus being um, Congo. And so they don't issue any IDs. Right. Oh, wow. And so we just made up numbers. Not using an ID number. This is your patient number. And, and just go from there. Fair enough. Yeah. As, as long as it's unique to, for that person. Right. And so we, we did this thing. And it's still going there today. We, we stopped doing this a couple of years ago. But the project is still in use. And one of the reasons that we didn't keep doing it was because it was it was a lot to maintain, and we had to, we put another person in to maintain it for us. But the the other thing is, it's also not a sustainable business, because okay, so you've done this for Tanzania, for for the lake. Where do you go next? Well, you go to Kenya, okay, and then where do you go after that? Well, you go to another country. One of the problems we found is that a lot of this stuff is paid for by grant money, and all of the grant people want to pay for needles for vaccines, for for treatments. None of them want to pay for computing infrastructure, for a solar panel and a car battery to power the thing in the middle of nowhere, right? It's it's all about yeah, being able to say we we put this many needles into population, you know, into the into the distribution that we've got this many HIV treatments, things like that, which is great, but it's very difficult to ever improve and support that. Right. And so Seeing that it was going to be difficult to sustain, seeing that it was going to be difficult to work out, we just we, we ended up mothballing it and letting it keep going as a project on its own, but not going on to the next country and chasing the next country after that because there was just nothing in it. So we found a fit, but the fit wasn't profitable. So what I like to talk about when I talk about this with people on the phone, we've got a number of people in a Slack channel for this podcast, and, and I talk with them on the phone from time to time, yep. is you, you, you have an idea for your product. You have your idea for what you're going to make. And how do you validate that? Well, you, you have to talk to people. And so, so it's, um, it's about how many people have this problem? Are they willing to pay for it? That is, how badly do they have the problem? And what's your access to them like? Like, can you find them? Can you hit 10 of them in an hour? Or is it going to be like the time that I had to find the person in the mining business where it took me two weeks to get hold of one? So, so you, you need to have 20 people you can find that have this problem instantly. And you have to be able right. to really find yep. You have to have access to them. You have to be able to hit them up on the phone or on email or, or chat and actually talk with them. And it has to be a problem that's real enough that they're actually willing to pay for it. And if you don't have those three things, then you don't have anything to do. You know, there there could be a real problem there, but if you can't reach them, like I couldn't reach people in the mining business for two weeks, you got nothing. Because how, how can you sell to them if you don't have access? And similarly, there are plenty of people that have a problem, but not so bad that they're willing to pay for it. Yeah? Yeah. It's, it's, especially if they've got like a, a manual workaround or, you know, some sort of thing. Well, that's just it. So, so when... Sometimes when we were at Griffin, when I was making stuff at Griffin Technology, we do focus groups. You invite 10 people, 15 people in, you give them pizza or, or sandwiches or whatever, and you'd put up on the board and say, we're thinking about making this. We're thinking about making this thing. Would you buy one? 
And everyone goes, well, sure, I'd buy one. And every one of the people in that room at that moment are a pack of liars. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. No, they are, they are lying through their teeth at you because they wouldn't actually buy the thing. But it looks like a nice thing, and you worked so hard to make it. So, so yeah, someone should buy that thing. Yeah. But they wouldn't. Yeah, and right? it's situational, and it's, it's kind of this, this situation where people feel like they've got to give you the answer you want to hear mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, and and we train people to do that all the way from school on up. Yeah, give yeah, give really the teacher do. what they want, right? So that is completely the wrong approach. The approach that I like to take is is not I'm making this thing. What do you think? Would you buy one? But way before that ever happened, tell me about the last time you had this problem. And when you tell me about that problem. What was the hardest part about that problem? And what did you try to do to solve that problem? And how long did it take you? Like, how painful was it? How much, how much did you put into trying to solve this thing? And then after you did all that, like you spent three hours and 200 bucks and, 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 and just fighting with it all to try and make it work, were you happy with the solution? Like, did it actually solve the problem? Was, <laughs> was all that work and energy there? Or were you just dissatisfied with the result? It kind of worked, but it, but it wasn't great, right? And then tell me about another time you had the same problem. Like, tell me about the second time it happened. And then tell me again about a third time. So now I've heard you tell me a bunch of different ways about how much this thing sucked. Yeah. And hopefully I heard that you spent a lot of time on it and that you spent some money on it. It doesn't have to be that you spent money on it, but, but that it was painful, right? And if you've told me that, and you've told me three times, then I can presume that it's a real problem. And if you spent money on trying to solve it, or you spent like six hours trying to solve it, tearing your hair out, I can presume you might want to spend some money to fix it. And now if I've got one of those with three occasions, I want to go find four more. If I have five people telling me three times that something was terrible, I have 15 examples of something really bad. And if I have 15 examples of something really bad, I can go make a product around that. And then if I can go out and find a total of 20 people with three things that are really bad, I can presume it's real. I, like, I, I will not only find all of the, the small problems, but I will find all the edge cases too. Yeah. So by that point, you've got a, a real problem, a good view of, of what drives the behaviors around that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've potentially even got a good view into um, some of the existing solutions as well, just by asking yeah. people how they've solved it. Yeah. And I've got access to 20 people. Yep. Which is fantastic because now I've got 20 people I can actually go back to. And I can go back and say, all right, I talked to you the first time and you told me all of this stuff and I heard you. And when I heard you, here's what I heard you say. And here's how I'm thinking of solving it. What have I got wrong? What am I missing? Okay, so you've not even built anything at this point. No, don't even build anything. <laughs> Building stuff's hard. Yep. Talk, talk to people. Now, likewise, talking to people can be hard too, and I totally recognize that. Because like, actually going outside of your house and, and talking to people is super hard. But you know, if, if you don't know where to find these people then how do you begin yeah and then there's also an argument to say well you'll be talking to somebody at some point anyway 
you know, if you put an app into the store completely blind, and if mm-hmm. what you desire for that is you want people to actually be buying your app, to be installing your app, you're going to get customer feedback. You know, you're going to have interactions. Not with always nice anyway. customer feedback. I- exactly. Yeah. So, so there's a point yeah. there to sort of say, well, bringing that back to the beginning of the process, um, it's probably a good idea anyway, because sooner or later you're going to have to in- interact with people in that way. Mm-hmm. There's something I want to ask you about your process that I think would be relevant for people listening. Um, okay. So I have more stories, but keep going. Okay. Um, not to derail too far, but. Uh, if I think back to the, my early days of sort of beginning to put together some of my apps, I think if you told me at that point, find some people and talk to them about this, my first mm-hmm. question might be, well, where do I find them? And then it would be, well, how do I approach people in, in, in that manner? Like, uh, you know, just thinking about the nuts and bolts of, of literally just sort of sitting there with a, a, a you know, an empty google sort of view you know okay i I was i was going to go back even further i was going to go back even before that step so you know a lot of people rightly or wrongly i i would contend maybe it's a mistake but let's let's allow it say i have the problem i'm making this thing to solve my own problem and i presume there are other people like me out there i'm going to make this thing for myself it's going to totally solve my problem and if anyone else wants it that's great yep and You've never heard that before, have you? That's exactly how I developed my first app. Yeah. And that's fine if you want to sell one copy to yourself. You've made a wonderful thing. It totally solves your own problem. You know exactly what your needs were. And you also know your your tolerance for what you'll accept, right? If If you make something for someone else and there's a bug in it or something's a little wonky, something's a little kludgy... Uh, that other person may not accept it. But if you're making it for yourself and solving your own problem, you know where the skeletons are buried and you're okay with it. And so once you start making something that's for someone else, or or even if it's a thing, if it's made for yourself, but you're sharing it with other people, it, it opens you up to all of those. What am I going to do to refine this thing? What am I going to do to make it right? And you start discovering that all these other people's needs aren't the same as your needs. They align a little bit, they have crossover, but they are not identical. And so the thing to start to answer your question is it's okay for first, it's okay to make something for yourself. Make yourself happy is a great philosophy in life that I totally support. Absolutely. Make yourself happy. But beyond that, when you start to want to make things for other people, um, you need to think about who else shares this problem. What do you know about them? How old are they? How, how, um, where are they in their lives? Are they, and and think about all the adjectives you can come up with to describe them, you know, for 30 to 40 year olds who are reasonably well off in their income and have children and like to exercise outside. Yep. Now you have an idea of something about these people. Well, the like to exercise outside is kind of key because then you can say, I'm going to go look at runners forums. I'm going to find out people who gather to talk about running or, or something like that. And, and then you can approach them. How do you approach them? Well, y- you can be completely honest and say, look, I'm, th- I'm an app developer. I'm trying to figure out how to develop an app. But I'm not marketing anything to you right now. And I'm also not just using you for market research. 
I, I want to really find out more about the problem. Can you just tell me what the hardest thing is about this? But you don't want to do it as a forums post, right? Because if you make a survey, surveys are hard and surveys don't give you good feedback. There are people that insist surveys are wonderful and give you the best feedback ever and that anything that doesn't is just the fault of a badly designed survey. Those people are liars. The thing to do is get someone in a conversation like this where you can really interact with someone. Get someone on a chat where you can respond to the things they've said immediately. Yeah. Because you'll hear interesting things that you won't be able to respond to. You won't be able to adjust. And if, if you get partway through a survey and all of a sudden the last half of your survey questions are all wrong for the person, then you've done nothing. That, um, that, that echoes a bunch of my own experience from uh, a, a past job that I had sort of way back when prior to sort of iOS developments. Mm -hmm. um, we worked with um, Net Promoter scores, so NPS data. Uh, everything must be five stars or else. Uh, it was a naught to <laughs> 10 scale, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, the thing within that world was that some people in, in our company really, really cared about the score itself. The score was not important. The thing that was really, really important was actually um, an indication of positive or negative, like do you like us or don't you like us? And the real gold was in the verbatim feedback that we got from people in that survey where they would just type whatever they wanted and just talk to us and say whatever they wanted inside of this this text field. Um, and, then, and then after that, we could actually put somebody on the customer services team um, on the phone to talk to that customer and actually talk more about why they scored us like that and what their problem was. Mm -hmm. Exactly what you're describing here, really, that yeah. sort of process. And talking is so important, right? Having that person be able to go back and talk to them. Well, what if you just led with that? Yeah. Especially if you're doing something pre-development or early stages of development, right? You know, once, once you've already got the product out there and you're getting feedback that's a little bit different, not much, but a little bit. One, one of the beauties of doing this, of, of talking to people first, is that it turns them into evangelists. Once they've heard how deeply you're hearing their problems— they want to help you. Once you've shown them where you think you're going and asked them to tell you where you're wrong so that you can correct it as you build, they're on board. They're, they are there for you, and they will champion you. When you come out and you say, hey, I've made the thing. I'm sharing it with you. I want your feedback. Tell me where it's wrong when you actually use it. That's like the third step going back. Then they get a chance to have used the thing for a week or a month or whatever, and then you say, I'm getting ready to launch in a week. Feel free, please, tell all your friends that you think also have the problem. And then they're boosting you. And they're boosting real-world experience, not just some guy coming in and asking them to boost. How do you get them to agree to the initial interview? Well, I mean, honestly, and, and people hate me when I say it sometimes, but pay them. Right. What, what do you mean, pay them? I mean, like, buy someone a $10 Amazon gift card. But, but I could use that $10 to put it back into my development. Um, you're thinking wrongly about this. This is your development. You are you are paying ten dollars for someone to tell you how right you are or how wrong you are or everything you need to know to make the thing correctly. That's your development. Pay them the ten dollars. Yep. Just pay them. People will give you their time for. People will give you an hour. People will give you half an hour. Pay them. You might learn something. Is learning something worth ten bucks? I I think so. So. 
that I, I'm sorry to be blunt, but I've I've heard people come back at me and say things like, "Why would I get? Why would I do that when I can get the answers for free using my survey?" Well, because you're wrong. <laughs> you just are. <laughs> so that's my belief on that. Now, that's not even how I got you to put me on this podcast where I don't belong, is it? No. No. No, not at all. No. We weren't supposed to talk about this. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> this was all a secret. This is between you and me. So the, the reason that I'm actually on your podcast is because we're going to talk about getting press. After I worked for Griffin and after I worked for Gear 4... Um, years, years before, years before I had worked for Mackinac and lately I've been, I'd been doing stuff for Apple Insider and I also have knapsack.news that I do with John Biggs, who's the editor-in-chief of Gizmodo. And, uh, I also do wristwatchreview.com. So not exactly app related, but we do do smartwatches and things like that and can talk about things that work on Apple Watch, although we do that with Knapsack as well. Apple Insider is is a great publication, but Apple Insider covers a lot more strongly on hardware and than it does on software necessarily. Um, it's it's a different point of view from your nine to five Macs and things like that, which is fine. It's just how editorial to see, sees the audience. Uh, but but I totally have avenues for publishing uh, about apps at those other outlets. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, and I hope you'll allow me, is what a press kit is and how you approach the press. That sounds fantastic. That's a, um, that's a point that every indie developer sort of hits. You know, you've got this this thing, you've got this app, you want to put it out into the world, You've you start looking at how to plan a launch, and every other article goes, make a press kit, and then doesn't really tell you properly what that press kit needs to be. Yeah, what is that thing anyway? So I'm going to tell you, uh, the last press kit that I received from an indie developer was one folder in Dropbox with a collection of images, all named with numbers and, and no actual descriptive name, and a flat markdown readme text. Oof. And so two things happened. First of all, it took forever to search to find the readme text amidst the long list of image names that were not named for anything useful. And when you open flat readme text from Markdown in Dropbox, it doesn't line wrap. And so you get one long line that you have to scroll infinity wide, which is nightmarish. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. And I, I said, that's not a press kit. And he said, oh, I thought it was. And I, I said, well, think about what you're trying to actually accomplish here and what the person in the press is trying to accomplish here. And he says, what do you mean? I said, well, so... Just as much as you think about your app as a product that is solving someone's problem, your press kit is a product that is solving someone's problem. And that someone is the journalist. The journalist has a couple of problems. First of all, the journalist has to be able to say yes or no rapidly whether or not your thing is right for them to write about. And so... If someone sends me a press release, which is another thing people make, and the press release is 2,000 words and and several, you know, eight paragraphs long, I can't, no, I can't. I can't. Yeah. I need 400 to 600 words. Like, I need you to tell me the story of your app in the space of three to four tweets. 
I know that I said I'm mixing up characters and words. But if you can do that, if you can distill it down to something like that, then you've made it easy for me to solve my problem of saying yes or no. This is for my audience or this is not for my audience. You've, um, you've, you've also respected the other person's time mm-hmm. at that point as well. Yeah. And your press kit needs to have the images with descriptive names. It needs to lay out why this thing is made and who it's for. And I use a, a formula sentence for this kind of thing. You know, I, I maker of this app made it for these people, plenty of adjectives, who have this specific problem, and I solve it with this special sauce. And if you do that, it makes it really easy to explain who it's for, who has the problem, what the problem is, and what makes you special. And then you lay out examples. Because I, I, if I get a bullet list of features, then I have to wade through it and try and make up my own examples. But And, and it, what you want is you want for people to identify themselves in your app. Like... At, at that Macworld long ago that I mentioned where Jobs introduced the Apple TV and the iPhone, he held up the iPhone and showed what it could do, and people saw themselves in the product. When he got to visual voicemail, that was me. That was for me. Because the idea that I could skip through the audio of a voicemail, didn't have to wait for it to finish playing, and that I could swipe to delete, and that I could answer them out of order, that I could play them out of order instead of sequentially, changed my life. Quite literally, changed my life. And so that, you know, I I know no one's on the phone anymore, and no one's leaving voicemails anymore. But back in 2007, kids, that was something we did. And having 150 voicemails from people all over North America and Europe leaving me support calls asking about HDTVs and Macs, meant that I could answer them in any order I needed to. And it was life-changing. So you need to help people see themselves in your product. And a list of bulleted features kind of gets that, but we got to work. Don't make us work. No one likes to work. What are you doing making me work? I don't want to read your list of features as much as I want you to tell me the short story. And then give me the list of features so I can see how it fits up. But if you can say, you know, my, my app is for reading text messages in the car. And so we know how that you're supposed to keep your hands on the wheel and supposed to be able to do things by voice. And this is a way of reading your text messages in the car by voice. I know that's very hands-free and all that. But but the idea is explain who it's for and then give examples. And then as a reviewer, show me step-by-step with the screens those examples instead of giving me one folder with unnamed photos. Yep basically walk the other person through it don't don't write my article for me because i will not republish your your writing but tell me who it's for tell me what problem you solve give me some examples and walk me through so that i can demonstrate it for myself and prove that it does what you say it does and then say nice things about it because that's all i really want to do is say nice things about it make it easy for me and and the truth is just as much as you're solving my problem by providing me with a actual press kit that I can use. I'm solving the problem for my reader. My reader actually reads my stuff. Well, at least I hope they do, because I provide them with stuff they can use. They can identify themselves in the stuff that I write. Yeah. It's all it, it's just all about listening and solving people's problems all the way down. And that and that continues all the way from product development to product launch 
and thinking about these things like like going into your marketing approach mm-hmm. um, with the press kit and all of that side of stuff. Yeah. And you need to think about, are you targeting the right press? Now, obviously, one of the things you could do if you were made of money is hire a PR firm. Hiring a PR firm is an excellent way to lose money. <laughs> and not because they aren't good at what they do. Some of them are. But because nearly all of them are exorbitant, especially when you're on a small app budget. Yep. You know, if 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 someone's charging you 4000 to $8,000 a month, that's untenable for an app developer, I think. In most circumstances, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But that that kind of fee is not entirely uncommon. And it's not undeserved, right? If if you hire a good agency, they will get you good press. But you have to understand what your ROI is on that. And you have to sort of understand that getting good press may not equal the the same growth in sales every time. But it's one of those things that contributes. It's sort of it's it's um cumulative. It grows, builds on itself. The more you're out there, the more you're likely to escape obscurity. Yep. You know, and a lot of people, when they talk about software development, they talk about piracy and fears of piracy. And piracy does exist. But obscurity is almost as bad a curse. You know, if you're obscure, you're not getting pirated. You're just not getting used at all. And so you, you need to find ways to escape obscurity. And getting coverage is one of those ways. And when you're doing it on your own because you don't have a PR firm, then you need to be like your own PR firm and solve your problem. And the problem is how do you get in front of the right people and then how do you approach them properly so that you get a piece written? And and it comes down to, like we said, about uh, making that, that pitch accessible and, and helping them solve their problems. In terms of finding the right people – in the app space, you kind of know it because you've got all of the, the, the typical Apple outlets that cover things. But you should also try and get outside of those. You know, if we were talking about that, that hypothetical fitness app that we talked about before, then you might want to try and get in touch with an editor at Runner's World, right? Yeah. You know, you, all of the things that you're doing are not only for people who use apps. They're for people who exist in the real world as whole people, as, as actual humans with many interests and many hobbies, and, and you know they, they are multifaceted. And so you want to go ahead and access them in those places as well, and not just from their forums where they gather when you're interviewing them, but also in the materials they read on the other side. Would you say that it's an appropriate thing to ask your sort of original 20 people, you know, how do you discover new things? in your in your area yeah absolutely it is but especially after you've turned them into evangelists for you yeah people don't like to be taken advantage of people feel that that if you're using them as a marketing research tool and they're getting nothing out of it that you're taking advantage of them and so you either need to do do one of two things for some groups they will insist that you give all your answers back publicly so that everyone can benefit from your answers and and you may want to do that and you may be uncomfortable with that paying them as an alternative to that. Um, the the thing I think most is to make sure that people feel valued. You are getting value out of them, makes them feel valued. Okay, so we talked about a bad press kit um, a second ago and some things you can do to sort of structure mm-hmm. um, a good press kit. I think there's a lot of detail there about how we can, you know, as developers do a lot better with that sort of thing. Can you give me an example of a 
kind of almost a perfect scenario when somebody reached out to you trying to get your bandwidth to get a an app review out there or whatever you know and you looked at that press kit or they contacted you in such in such a way that it was absolutely perfect from from day one so i i like when someone writes as a person and doesn't try and put on a pr voice right if if someone is saying today in in uh, Holborn we launched this well that, that's great but i know i'm not reading a real person i'm reading something that's written for a, a, a announcement voice if i get hey victor uh, i'm working on this project i think it's for these people and i've made this and i'd like you to take a look at it here's images and here's a basic walkthrough of what i'd think you'd do as a new user done so easy perfect i'm ready to go <laughs> And, you know, I've, I've gotten hardware products like that. And sometimes I, I don't always write about these things. Uh, just because I take something as a sample doesn't necessarily mean that I'm agreeing to write about it, although reviews have been arranged on less. What I will do is give you feedback. I tried to use this thing. I couldn't do it. It didn't work out right for me. What am I missing? Um, can you make this better? Yeah. And sometimes people are very disappointed because this thing they thought was perfect and ready to launch, uh, it's not. It isn't. I mean, I've, I've, I have the unique perspective. I've made products. I have, I have managed hardware products. I managed thirty hardware products from concept to production in China um, in the course of one year, and it about killed me because it was a lot of products to manage. Yep. And I know how hard it can be. I know what goes into them. But if I, if you send me something to write about and it's not ready. And it's and it's a release product, not a prototype. I'm going to tell you it's not ready. And if you insist that it's ready, I will publish it's not ready. <laughs> if, <laughs> yes, I will. Because you didn't listen. And you got to listen. Yeah. You don't have to listen to me, but you will when I publish it. And if you don't want to listen then, that's fine too. It's okay, but but I'm just I'm just saying it's important. You know, if if someone sends me a prototype and says this is a prototype, I will be very kind and say there are things that are still being improved, but it looks like it will do the thing it says it looks like it will do. But if but if you send me this thing in final and insist that it's final, um, yeah, I might just say that it's not. Again, it comes down to respecting the other person. And it comes down to being aware that the person that you're contacting has got to respect their audience as well. Yeah, and, and ultimately I'm responsible to my audience. If yeah. I'm if I'm writing for publication, they are the, the people that are making it worth writing for. And so it, it, that's what happens. And the truth is, you're not always going to get glowing positive press. And you shouldn't want 100% glowing positive press. Uh, there has been research done, I think, at Harvard Business School, and I, I remember seeing a paper, I think, from MIT. I wish I could put my finger on it right now, but I'm off the top of my head. I can't. That said that reviews that had some negative comments to them were more credible, more believable than reviews that were 100% glowing. So when I point out where things are a little rough or where things could be better or what you've got going on, this is not because I want to hurt you. It's because I'm telling the truth, and the truth has more value than only telling the good story. Does that make sense? It makes an awful lot of sense. I think a lot of developers uh, struggle at that point, especially if they've just made something for themselves, you know, for their for their own needs. 
they've made this this app that perhaps scratches an itch or, or whatever mm-hmm. and like you said before is you know it's perfectly okay to do that and to give yourself a a product for a market of one yep um but then they they put it out there into the world and it could be perhaps that 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 interaction at the point of when they launched is one of the first times they've heard anything that negative you know th- there are a few things to keep in mind first of all you you have to be willing that you, it, you have to be willing to replace your own product right your product is your baby but you can't be that attached to it you have to be willing to improve it throw it out repair it make it better and and if it's not suitable replace it you you have to be willing to accept that something isn't right and you have to i think and this is a hard one for everyone rethink how you define success okay let me say that another way a lot of people think that success is making a million dollars a lot of people think that success is being able to write apps for the app store as your sole income yeah and and that is certainly one measure of success right both of those things could be said to be very successful but at the same time you don't want to be demoralized out of existence when you don't get that result. So you have to rethink what success means. Success, define it at the outset. Define it before you even make the product. I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to declare that it was a success when X result happens, and X result is not tied to monetary reward. Right, so you take the monetary reward away from that. Let me, let me give you an example. I talked, about, I talked about the project in Tanzania, where we set up all of these these communications devices at healthcare is up and down the lake, healthcare centers. And the result was that before we did that, the people in the healthcare centers, the healthcare workers, had to shut down each healthcare center for a week out of a month so that they could take a motorcycle, a 4x4, a seaplane, to truck the records back from their remote location to the Ministry of Health. And if they didn't do oh. that, they wouldn't get paid. And so success was that we did this system, we put it in place. The result was that they kept the healthcare centers open the whole month. They didn't shut down for one week out of the month anymore. And therefore, I sleep really good at night knowing that I was responsible for contributing to the saving of lives because the healthcare center is no longer closed a week out of the month. A project I worked for, someone, somewhere, if, if it hadn't been that way, if we hadn't done this thing, people would have either have died or they would have had to drag their sorry, sorry butts another 50 kilometers up the road to the next healthcare center and hope that that one's open and have yeah. no way of knowing if it was or not because they didn't have telephones. So it's, it's a real way of defining success that's not dependent upon did we make a giant business, did we sell the business, did we IPO, did we do any of these things. No, but someone stayed well someone got well someone didn't die that's a success i'm okay with that (laughs) it's a big success (laughs) i'm okay with that (laughs) so figure out what success is it doesn't have to be tied to the monetary reward from the app store maybe success is you made a thing and you put it in the hands of 20 people and those 20 people had a good experience as a result I, i was going to say you could um by going the process of talking to people up front, finding your your group of 20, um, you've all automatically at that point, you've probably got enough of a view of the problem and how to solve it 
to be able to find those markers of success that are not just tied to the financial outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the MVP has has kind of a bad name because I think a lot of people misuse it, and misunderstand it. Um, you know, it, it used to mean most uh, most viable product or or most valuable product. Um, people people try and give it other names to try and help express what it really ought to mean better. But but basically, building stuff is hard, like I said, and so you you want to test your theory about what you're building before you build out the whole thing, because it's really easy to to build every single last feature you ever want to pile it in and then never launch anything. So one way of visualizing it, right, and you see this in diagrams a lot, is is the pyramid where you, you stack all of the, the things that you're trying to accomplish, and people try and accomplish those layers going up, and that's wrong, right? The, the correct way to go about it is to try and, and work from the edge and do a little bit of each layer and then grow across. Another way of thinking about it is, you know, if you were building a vehicle, um, the wrong way to do it would be to build a car with one wheel and then add another wheel and then add another wheel and add another wheel. And it just wouldn't work. The The right way is to talk about mobility as the real problem. Yep. So you build a pedal-powered scooter, and then you build a bicycle, and then you build a car, right? The 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 thing is, is what can you do to solve the problem quickly to prove that you're solving the right problem and then go back and build the real thing? But but that you you need to uh, prove that you're solving the right problem. So you have to build enough of it out to show this. And you don't do it in a slapdash manner. You want to release when you're ready and release when things are good. But you need to, at the same time, make sure that you're solving the critical things first. For example, for example, I, I woke yeah. up this morning. I knew we were going to have this call. So this morning, because I wait until the last minute, always, always do, I, I woke up and I said, what if I had a landing page where listeners who didn't click off immediately at the beginning when I said I'm not supposed to be here stuck around and, and wanted to talk to me more about any of this stuff? Well, so I threw together a landing page in the worst place possible. I put it on Google Sites. <laughs> like, why would you even? Well, because I was just trying to prove that I could. Like, what's, what's the real problem here? The real problem is people might want to actually talk to me. God love you if you do. And so... I, I thought I got together on Google Sites, and then I would put a Calendly embed in there so that people could schedule time with me. And it was going great. I actually had a thing that looked, you know, not the entire worst you've ever seen. It was not like GeoCities with, with animated GIFs and stuff. So okay. I've got a thing, and I got roadblocked by DNS. <laughs> trying to put a trying to put a proper domain on it so that you could actually get there nicely <laughs> didn't tick over like you'd hope yep. because DNS traditionally takes between either seconds and it works immediately or 24 hours. <laughs> but but there is a site there will be a site you know e- either at my own domain victormarks.com or at sites.google.com/victormarks/whatever I don't know I'll give it in the show notes. And if you'd like we can talk about this a little bit more. So that goes out to anybody listening to this. It does. Awesome. It does, because you you have, and I have to say this, I mean, I've talked to a number of different audiences. I I led the Apple Insider podcast for over 300 episodes. I led the Mac and N podcast back when we started that in 2005. Of all of these things, you have the most handsome, best dressed, and and generally nicest humans for an audience. You really do. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. You You are very fortunate. You have a wonderful audience, and I would love to talk to them. That's great to hear, Victor. Uh, it's it's um, 
So you've experienced the audience of the show via the the Slack channel that that we have. Yeah, yeah. Great people. And um, in addition to that, I, I would just sort of like to put this out there as well that that obviously the Slack channel is an open invite to the audience of the show. Um, but what we what I found, you know, with the people that have reached out to me to say, hey, yeah, can I join your Slack? Uh, by and large, the ones that have reached out to do that have then gone on to be contributors over in that Slack channel and to support other developers over there in you know, the most fantastic of ways. It's every day I sort of check my updates on the channel and there's been chatter without me, you know, because time zones and everything else being in New Zealand. Um, and um, it's just fantastic to sort of see that coming across. So I really appreciate that you found you know, that aspect of being involved over there. And um, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and offering this sort of opportunity to the audience to reach out to yourself. I think that's great. Thank you very much for letting me steal someone else's spot. I know, I know whoever they were was much more deserving than I, but I have been so glad to be here with you. Thanks a lot, Victor. 